Good evening. Good evening. You can open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, where we left off last week. I had planned on sharing a somewhat shorter message last week, which ended up being a little shorter even so, given us uh, the situation and us wanting to get out of here to get out on the road, which turned out to be rather challenging as it was, right? So I'm glad to see those of you who were here last week still here this week and uh, looking to check in on a few people that I didn't see tonight, make sure they're okay. But if it does start to rain, don't, you know, climb to the top of the hill and start building an ark. It's going to be okay. It's supposed to get a little rain tonight, but I don't want anyone freaking out. 1 John chapter 5, we left off in verse 16. We have been talking about the fact that we have access to the throne of God. We're in that section that deals with the, uh, the cat. Well, we've talked about the concerns for fellowship. We talked about the conditions for fellowship. And we talked about the character of fellowship. And we've been talking about all of these things in the context of the fellowship that we have in Christ. And as I've gone through this book and I've studied it, I've realized there's so much to learn here. It's a very profound book. It's written in a way that really challenges you. You have to stop and think about it, but the truths are actually not that complicated. They are actually quite simple and yet profound. And I find that many times the things that are simple are profound, and profound lessons shouldn't be so complicated that you cannot understand them. So as I've said, we've looked at the concerns of a fellowship, the Uh, conditions for fellowship. And now we're in that section that deals with the confidence of fellowship. There's the word I was looking for. The confidence of fellowship. And uh, as we think about that, as we look and move to the end of this book, remember that we have the confidence that we have eternal life. We have the confidence to approach the throne of grace. But one of the things that I think Christians oftentimes forget is that you can be confident that your sins are forgiven. I think that, you know, everyone just sort of wants to breathe a sigh of relief when they realize, oh, my sins are forgiven. But we need to be confident in that forgiveness. John started this book by talking about if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But sometimes we forget that God forgives all, and I say all, of our sins. And and that confidence, once you know that you are sinless before God because of his forgiveness, then you can enter the throne of God and his presence with boldness and confidence, looking for help in your time of need. So it's in that understanding that we want to move forward to the end of this book. The confidence that we have in Christ's presence, but the confidence we have that we are in fact forgiven by God. Let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, for us being able to be here in fellowship and able to worship you in your presence. We now just want to sort of glean from your word, understand these applications, apply them to our hearts and to our lives, and grow in our confidence. Our confidence that you love us, that you died for us, that you're coming again. Lord God, that you rose again and that you're coming again. And Lord, we are confident that you will accept us in your presence because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of our faith in his death and resurrection and his coming again, because we've placed our lives in his hands. We know that we can be confident that we can embrace you for all eternity in your presence. Lord, now just speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Children of God know 
that he will forgive sinners as long as their sin does not lead to death. Now, all sin leads to death, but that's where Jesus gets involved. If you have Jesus in your life, then sin doesn't lead to death. But all sin leads to death. When Christ becomes your Savior, when you receive him as your personal Lord and Savior, you become a child of God, you're a son or a daughter of God, no longer does that sin lead to death because it, it is superseded by his death. And because of his death, your sin doesn't lead to death. That's the context of this entire book. You know that truth. Now, with that as a backdrop, knowing as children of God that he will forgive us sinners, as long as our sin doesn't lead to death, we know that we're called to pray. We know that we're called to receive that forgiveness. And so we read in verses 16 and 17, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, that may seem a little confusing. Some of you may be saying, oh, is there one particular sin that you can commit that leads to death? And then, you know, all other sins don't lead to death. No, no, back to how we started. Sin leads to death apart from Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, sin does not lead to death. So let's, with that as an understanding, remember, we are called to pray for others when they sin. That's hard, isn't it? When someone sins against you or sins against God, it's hard to pray for them. Oh, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, Jesus said that from the cross. Don't lay this sin to their charge. Oh, Stephen said that when he was being stoned. But how many of us actually can say, oh, Lord, don't judge that person for sinning so wickedly against me and against you? It's hard to say that. Most of the time in our hearts, most of the time we want them to get it. It's like, God, take out your vengeance against that person. They cut me off. They got the last wet vac at Home Depot. They saw me standing there. It's the kind of thing that happens in our hearts when we get selfish. We talked a little bit about this last week. When we get selfish, self and sin, it leads to death. And here's the thing. We know we're called to pray for others when they sin. Any sin that is confessed to God, hear me, any sin that is confessed to God is a sin that will not lead to death. Can you say amen? Any sin that is confessed to God is a sin that will not lead to death. I know what you're thinking. Oh, but pastor, what if I don't confess a sin as a Christian? You're missing the point. You're saved in Jesus Christ. That's the point. Okay? So as we confess our sins, as we confess that we're sinners, even if you sinned last Thursday and forgot about it, when you confess that you're a sinner in the presence of God, you're forgiven. It's that attitude of knowing that Christ died on the cross for your sins that allows you to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. Basically, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven of all sin, purified from all unrighteousness, past, present, and future in the blood of Christ. So yes, there is a sin that will not lead to death. Any sin that a Christian commits because they're in Jesus Christ is in fact forgiven in Jesus Christ. But notice that God will respond to our prayers by giving them eternal life in his son Jesus. As long as they're not committing sin 
apart from Jesus Christ. That is, they don't know Christ as Savior. If you were to pray, if you see a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. But notice he says, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. See, there are sins that lead to death. He goes on to say that there is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. So, when a person who's not a Christian sins against God and against man, it would be wrong for you or for me to say, God, forgive them apart from Jesus Christ. It would be wrong for you to say, oh, God, please be merciful and forgive them. I know that person doesn't know you. It's like what you're saying is you can be forgiven apart from Christ. Can that be? No, so essentially what John is saying is, look, for your brother, for those who are in Christ, pray for them when they sin. Pray for them. But don't think for a minute that just because you pray for someone who isn't a Christian, that somehow when they stand before God, God's going to say, oh, I have to forgive you. Tim prayed for you on a Wednesday night. Therefore, I can't judge you for your sin, even though they're not in Christ. So just understand that's the point. Christ is the difference in being forgiven versus not being forgiven. And so... God cannot give them eternal life until and unless they receive his son, Jesus. You all agree with that, I'm sure. Now, why would he be mentioning this? I've mentioned this so many times in this study. This is probably meant to exclude a specific group of people called the Gnostics that denied Christ and their own sin. That's a sin that leads to death. Denying Christ is a sin that leads to death. Saying that, oh, I have no sin in my life. John already told us, you lie and the truth isn't in you. Going through life and saying, I'm not a sinner. How can you, how dare you suggest that I'm a sinner? I'm not a sinner. That's a sin that leads to death. Don't pray for that person to be saved. I mean, pray that they would come to Jesus and be saved, but don't pray for them to be saved anyway, even if they don't come to Jesus. That would be silly, wouldn't it? So here's the problem. In the church at that time, you have this group of people called the Gnostics, the knowers. They claim to know everything. And yet John keeps using this word, no. I mean, if you go back to verse 13, I, and I, throughout the book, but even just in this section, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Why is he so intentional about using that word gnosis or no? Because there were Gnostics who claimed to know stuff that they didn't. It's a very pointed epistle. If you don't understand the audience and the circumstances of the time, you won't understand why he said some of the things that he said and the way that he said them. This was a heresy in the church at that time. Now notice he also says, as he begins to get into this section, he says, uh, all wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. What he's doing is reassuring those Christians who love God. There is sin that you sin, and it's not going to mean you're going to die and spend eternity apart from Christ, because you're in Christ. But there is a sin that leads to death. And the Gnostics and those heretics who deny Christ and the truth of the gospel, they have committed and are committing that sin. They don't have to keep committing that sin. But as long as they deny Christ, as long as they deny their own sin, they continue to commit sins that lead to death. Every unsaved person on this planet that is alive or has ever been alive or ever will be alive commits a sin that leads to death because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is 
eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, it's quite simple, really. You're either gifted with eternal life or your sin will lead to death. And so he's separating the wheat from the chaff here as he writes, telling them, look, you know, pray, but just remember, praying for the Gnostics isn't going to save them. They have to repent. Now, we know, we know that we're called to pray for others when they sin, but we also know that God cannot forgive those that sin a sin that leads to death. I think one of the things that we get into, we we kind of lie to ourselves. We sort of lie to ourselves. And we have family members that don't know Christ, and we tell ourselves, well, you know, they went to church, and, you know, they, they, they say nice things about God, and they believe there is a God. My father calls him the man upstairs, you know. Cavalier attitude about a belief in Christ. And we want to believe the people we love are saved, so we tell ourselves these white little lies, or these little white lies, and we basically tell ourselves, well, they're saved, but they're not, because they deny Christ and they deny their own sin. And that's a harsh reality, isn't it? We don't like to think about those things, but you have to think about those things. There's no other way in which a man can be saved, a woman can be saved. So it's important to understand what he says In verse 16, we've read it already, latter part, there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that it should pray about that. We'll be praying against God's will to suggest that you could be forgiven apart from Christ. Any sin, any sin that is not confessed to God is a sin that will lead to death if you're apart from Christ. You have to confess that sin. You have to confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus called but this particular type of sin, that is, the rejection of Jesus, the rejection that of the truth that you are a sinner, the pushing away of the Holy Spirit, the blaspheming of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus referred to this particular type of sin as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that's also another way of saying a sin that leads to death. So when you hear John talk about a sin that leads to death, it's any sin apart from Christ. But when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're denying the truth of Jesus Christ as testified to by the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit teach us? He's Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God, who came to earth as a man, died on a cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's the truth of God's word. That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. If you dispute that truth, reject that truth, deny that truth, you blaspheme the testimony of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be forgiven of that sin. Because you reject Christ. So you see how that all fits together? And you might be saying, oh my goodness, Pastor, at one point in my life I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Yeah, me too. But I'm here today because I stopped blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I stopped sinning sins that led to death, confessed my sin, gave my life to Jesus Christ, and became his son, his child. And now I'm forgiven in Christ. So it is actually impossible spiritually for me to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's living within me. It's actually impossible for me to sin a sin that that leads to death because I'm saved. I have eternal life. If you have eternal life, say amen. So let's not worry. This is all about confidence. You know what's funny? The irony is that this is a section that talks about our confidence in fellowship, and yet some people use it to undermine the confidence of Christians in their sins being forgiven. Makes them, you know, worried. You know, that sin you sin might just have been the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
Oh, you might have sinned a sin that leads to death, even though you're a Christian. And isn't that something when this whole section is about being confident and knowing you're saved? I've read it to you already. That's why John is writing. He told us, I write these things so you'll know that you have eternal life. So if you walk away from a Bible study in this section of the Bible and feel, oh, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm forgiven. Then you're reading it wrong. So back to what we're looking at here. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ. And to speak against the Holy Spirit, which is what the Pharisees did, is to deny the truth and reject Jesus Christ. Of course, you're not going to be forgiven of that sin. God will respond to our prayers by giving all of those that pray for forgiveness eternal life. But God will not respond to our prayers by giving those who reject Christ eternal life. It's just not going to happen. You can pray for that person to be saved in Jesus Christ, but you can't expect God to save them apart from him. I think we're all on the same page, right? Okay. God can give them eternal life if they receive his son, Jesus. He is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Again, probably directed specifically at the Gnostics who denied Christ and their own sin. Now, we also know, it says in verse 17, notice we know this as well. There's a lot we know. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. So we know we sin, but we also know that we're saved. That's the gist of it. We know that confessed sin is forgiven, and unconfessed sin brings eternal death. So confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you of all unrighteousness. That's the message of the gospel. Reject it, and you stand apart from Christ. Accept it, and you stand in Christ's presence for all eternity. As we read last week, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. That pretty much sums it up. Okay. There's a bunch of things that we're going to see John tells us we know. Remember? The Gnostics know, but we know. We know something that they don't know. We have a knowledge from God and the Holy Spirit that they could never even imagine because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And this is what we learn, and we're just going to take it verse by verse as we close out this book. We know that we have freedom from sin. Look what it says in verse 18. We know. There we go. There's that word. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Can I hear an amen? That's a confidence. You don't start by saying, we know this, and then say, yeah, but we're not really sure. It's about the confidence of fellowship. We know this. This is what we know. And I love the fact that Steve picked that song, This We Know. You know, because this is the truth that we know in God's word. Children of God know that they do not continue in sin. You might stop and say, but Pastor Tim, I sin all the time. You're missing the point. To continue in sin is not so much being really, really bad, because all of you continue to sin. To continue in sin is to look at your sin, like the Gnostics said, and say, that's not sin. That's not, that's not really sin. I know what the word says, but I know that, that God doesn't consider that sin in my life. Now, that's a bad place to be. So if you think about continuing in sin as continuing in unconfessed sin, then this verse makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. 
The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. So it's all about your position in Jesus Christ that determines your confidence in fellowship. You would be wrong to say that the goal that John is trying to promote is sinlessness. Because remember how he started the book? If you say you're without sin, you lie and the truth isn't in you. So how can the guy who wrote the first chapter be interpreted in the last chapter as suggesting that as a Christian you're no longer going to sin? You must be reading it wrong, and you would be reading it wrong if you didn't look at it in the whole context. So, and you remember that, right? If you were here with us in those studies back in chapter 1, he says in verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now, you might be thinking, well, it says sinned. So maybe after I become a Christian, I'm not supposed to sin anymore. And if I continue to sin, then maybe I'm not saved anymore. And then you'd be forgetting why John wrote the book. It's about your confidence in the presence of God. Why would he, why would he create doubt? Only, only we do that to ourselves. God doesn't do that. So what we're learning here and you've got to drop down into verse two a little, or chapter 2 a little bit. He says in verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, does that sound like somebody who's suggesting you're not going to sin anymore? If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but for also, or also for the sins of the whole world. So, It's so important that you understand where John is coming from and not interpret this through the lens of sinless perfection. Because to suggest that you could live that way not only contradicts the scripture, all of scripture, and even this book, and even John's writing, but the very words of Jesus, the revealed word of God. So I want to make that clear because I don't want you leaving here with anything but confidence. But you have freedom from sin. We don't continue to sin. We know that by continuing in him, we no longer continue in sin because in him is no sin. Continue in Christ, you no longer continue in sin because your sins are forgiven. They've been purged through the person of Jesus Christ. When Christ sees you, when God sees you, he sees you in his son Jesus Christ as sinless, not because you are, but because positionally you belong to him. Amen? It's so important. This is the confidence we have. It isn't in yourself. We know that Jesus, the Son of God, saves us and keeps us safe. And we know that the devil, the evil one, cannot harm us. Why? Because God lives in us. That is such an important verse. We read it already in verse 18, the latter part. It says, the one that was born of God keeps him safe. He's referring to Jesus. This is the evil one cannot harm him. The evil one cannot harm you because Christ lives in you. We go to verse 19. That's confidence. Okay, so we know that. We also know in verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Newsflash, if you didn't know this already, John tells you that we're the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. As Gomer Pyle used to say, remember? Surprise, surprise, surprise. I don't think that that is going to surprise anyone for me to tell you that the whole world is under the control. That is the world system of the evil one, the devil. Right? If you don't believe that, if you need proof, then watch the news tonight. If you don't, don't. You'll sleep a whole lot better. 
We know what is going on in this world. Many Christians are having a hard time right now. Steve shared a little bit about it when he opened up in worship. We're all having a great struggle when we see what's going on in the world because we're like, where's God, man? Why isn't he stepping in? If I were God, I would, you know, good thing you're not God, right? We're all trying to figure out why is God allowing these things to take place? Michelle and I were talking, I guess it was just this morning, just today. We were in the car and we were talking about it. And, you know, we're beginning to wonder if God isn't giving them enough rope to hang themselves. You ever hear that expression? I'm going to give you enough rope to hang yourself. Giving them what they need to show themselves for who they are, children of the devil. And when you think about it, and I'm not going to mention specific politicians, but when you think about it, many of the leaders in our world are starting to be undone by their own words and their own actions. Their comeuppance, as we like to say, is upon them. And if God didn't give them the position that they had, they never would have gotten caught doing what they were doing. So you wonder, is, is God just, and I don't know, I, I don't know the heart or the mind of God perfectly. I just know that many people in positions of power in the world system are falling and they're starting to be exposed for who they are. Could that be God? Could that be the Holy Spirit of truth revealing who they really are to the world? I'm beginning to think that that's the plan, that that's the end game here. To allow these evil people who are controlled by the devil to be exposed for who they are. Again, I'm not going to mention specific names. I want to so badly, but I'm not going to. So as I think about it, I think, you know, that's a pretty good plan. Maybe I should just let God be God and trust him through these dark days. That's just one particular facet of of what I think God might be doing. But it's amazing when you consider how God works. So you know that the world belongs to the devil. You know that we belong to God, but we don't belong to the world, and that the world is under the control of the evil one. But what did we just read about the evil one? He can't harm us. Amen? In verse 18, we read, I'm going to read it again so you can have this confidence. Remember, today's all about confidence. The evil one cannot harm us. God keeps him safe. God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. I'm going to go back to the beginning of 18. We know that anyone born of God, that would be you, does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. Speaking of Jesus, keeping us safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. Can't harm Jesus, can't harm us. And then he goes on to say, and we know that we are the children of God. God protects his children. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Oh, not such great news, but we know it's true. So just those are the things we can be confident of, even though the world's under the control of the devil and his demons. They can't harm you. As John has already said, greater is he that is in you than than he that is in the world. See, this book is all about your confidence, your fellowship in Christ. I want you to understand, we know that the world works in darkness and in unconfessed sin. See, that's how they get caught. They walk in darkness, they don't confess their sins, And then they get busted, and then they end up out of the governor's mansion. They end up off the air. They end up out of a job. They end up impeached. They end up whatever the situation is. Why? Because they got caught because they were walking in darkness and didn't confess their sin. You know what's amazing to me? We are pretty forgiving as a nation. I would say that that's very true, for the most part. Because all of our leaders have feet of clay. That is to say, nobody's perfect. And I have found over the years, my brief amount of years on this planet, 
that when a politician or a leader or someone in authority or a pastor admits they're wrong, asks for forgiveness, they're usually given a degree of forgiveness and shown mercy and grace. It's only when they try to cover it up that they get in trouble. But see, if you're living in darkness and unconfessed sin, you're always covering it up. But be sure your sins will find you out. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot more of. But we will see. So we know the world works in darkness and unconfessed sin. We know the world hates one another. They do. They hate one another. Isn't it amazing? You've got people on one side of the political spectrum. You think they're, they're allies. And then five minutes later, they're eating each other alive. That's what happens when you give your heart to the devil. You have no alliances. But we're not those people. We're the children of God. We know that the world denies Jesus Christ, therefore it hates his children. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. You know, it's amazing to me, just amazing to me. It's hard because we have the Holy Spirit. It's hard not to be like, what? How is this even happening? But, you know, people are being deplatformed and canceled for standing up for the rights of children in the womb. And there's a whole vast number of people out there that think the, the better and more noble action and agenda is to kill children in the womb. And those that would stand up for the rights of the unborn are somehow like the Taliban, like Nazis. And yet those groups of people kill without mercy. They kill without mercy. And yet they point the finger at us. You start to see that the world really is under the control of the evil one, right? And I know you're astounded, and I know you're thinking, how can these things be? Because they walk in darkness and unconfessed sin, they can't even see it. We can see it. God has given us eyes to see. We have the Holy Spirit. We've talked a lot about this over the last few uh, months. But anyway, what I want you to understand is that we belong to God. They do not. So there's going to be a vast difference in the way we think, the way we act, the things we support, the things they support. When we get to verse 20, it says, we also know, there we are again with that word, we also know, or we know also, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even his Son Jesus Christ he is the true God and eternal life. Amen? That, that is the truth that we cling to. That is the truth of the gospel, the knowledge of who Christ is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And anyone that denies that is not a child of God. We know that he came as a man to live the perfect life, to teach us the truth about God. We know that he came that we might know God and have eternal life in his Son. And we know, notice, know that he came as God, the Son of God, the true God, and the eternal life. Because you know those things, you're the true knowers. The Gnostics knew nothing. And the world knows nothing. The world is so steeped in ignorance and falsehoods and fake news, they can't even see the truth if it bit them on the nose. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. You are a child of God. That's how come you can see the truth. Finally, closing this up, a wonderful little verse, little exhortation. I like the way John closes it out, as if he hasn't given us enough already. Gives us a little bonus, like a deleted scene at the end of a movie. Or what do they call a credit, post-credit scene. 
Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's a powerful statement. That could be a whole Bible study right there. Children of God know to put Jesus Christ first in their lives above all else, and that is the exhortation. An idol is when you put anything in the place of Christ. So children of God know to put Jesus Christ first in their lives above all else. We know that idolatry is the most serious sin that a child of God can commit. A child of God. It's the most serious sin you can commit. How do I know that? Well, first of all, idolatry is addressed in two of the Ten Commandments. Idolatry was the first sin that Israel committed in the wilderness. Idolatry was the sin that ultimately caused Israel to go into captivity into Babylon. It was because of idolatry. We know that idolatry was practiced in Ephesus, the city that John was in at this time, like no other city in the ancient world. So to say, keep yourselves some idols to a group of people in Ephesus made a lot of sense. See, many stories of the ancient gods took place in the city of Ephesus. In fact, the great temple of Artemis, or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, stood in Ephesus. It was the center of the most immoral pagan rites. It offered asylum to the most wicked of criminals. Stop for a minute. One of the ways you will know a society is imploding is when it offers asylum to its most wicked of criminals. There ceases to be justice in the world. Look at the state laws. Look at the federal laws. Look at the liberal courts. Look how people are not being punished for their crimes. It's an indicator of where we're at. This temple offered asylum to wicked criminals. It was the center of astrology, sorcery, incantations, amulets, and exorcisms. That temple was in this city. This is the city, John says, keep yourselves from idols. You see, we may not live in Ephesus, but we live in the world. And there's a temple of Artemis on every corner. Actually, just turn on your TV. There's the temple of Artemis. You know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to take a deep breath and just sort of trust God through what is an astounding time in our nation, in our culture. I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, but I read today that they're going to have a same-sex couple competing on Dancing with the Stars. Does that sound like Sodom and Gomorrah to anybody? I don't watch that show, but I thought, where are we at that now it's not men and women dancing together for competition. But it's going to be two women, and then eventually you'll have two men dancing together. I'm supposed to watch this? I don't even want to see the commercial. You know, when I think about this, it's more, really more like dancing with the demons than the stars. I, 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 I just, that's just an indication. It's a very popular show, and I'm thinking, that's where we're at, folks that I can't even watch regular TV because if a commercial comes on, inevitably, even if it's a commercial about a bank, I'm going to be confronted with gay and lesbian rights. Or transgenderism. Now they have Cinderella, Disney, oh, good old Disney, putting out a movie where the fairy godmother's a guy in drag. I'm not making this stuff up, brothers and sisters. That's where we're at. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves pure in this wicked world. 
John concludes his epistle with this extremely important and relevant call to purity. Just because we live in a decadent society doesn't mean you shouldn't keep yourself pure. In fact, all the more, you should keep yourself pure. We know that anything that takes the place of Christ in our lives is an idol. Idolatry is spiritual adultery in our relationship with God. Idolatry will destroy our fellowship in Christ, which is the theme of this letter. We know that it is our responsibility to remove these idols from our lives. So I ask you as we close, is there anything in your life more important than Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And if so, why are you holding on to worthless idols instead of Christ? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves in the fellowship of Christ. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for John's exhortation. We thank you for this word. We live in such a dark world, and we know that the evil ones run in this world, but he can't do anything to us. You're greater. You live in us. You're greater than him. He bows before your throne. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Many of those knees will be forced. But Lord, we bow willingly, Because rather than serving idols, we serve you, the living God. We give our hearts to you afresh and anew and ask Heavenly Father, strengthen us, encourage us, show us how confident we can be in your fellowship, in our fellowship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.